friends. If we haven't met before, I'm Julia Hanlon, host of the Running on Ohm podcast, and today's episode is a little different. Today is Running on Ohm's 200th episode, and for the past 199 episodes, I've had the honor of interviewing pioneers of the mind-body-spirit connection, from actors, surfers, Olympic gold medalists, to entrepreneurs. I bring you authentic conversations with people I believe who have insight that can change your life. But today... The tables turn, and my good friend and soul sister Nicole Antoinette, whose name you might recognize from our Real Talk Reflection series, interviews me and asks me your questions, questions that all of you submitted last month about my journey. And getting real with you guys, this is scary for me to be on the other side of the mic, but as nervous as I am to be the one interviewed, I'm also kind of excited to share with you a bit about my story and why 199 episodes later, I'm still at this. In our conversation, we dig into your questions on how I started practicing yoga and running and the role yoga and running play in my life now, why I started the Running on Own podcast, and advice for those interested in starting their own podcasts, how I dealt with the disappointment of not meeting a major personal goal, the top three lessons I learned from three different podcast interviewees, and what I wish I knew as a teenager. Nicole and I go deep, and I open up to all of you unfiltered in a way that I haven't done before about the highs and lows of my life. If you've been listening to Rue for a while now and want to help me continue bringing you the highest quality podcasts every week so that I can still be at this 199 episodes from now, please consider donating to Rue's Patreon page, where for as little as $2 a month, you can support Rue and get insider access into the podcast, behind-the-scenes clips from recording sessions, opportunities to be coached by me, and get a personal shout-out on the podcast. So visit patreon.com slash runningonohm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash runningonohm, and know that any amount of support helps. So before we dive into today's episode, my question for you, yes you, is what have you done 200 times that's changed your life? Tweet or write to me on Instagram. I want to know your answer, and I always love to hear from all of you. You ready to jump into your questions with myself and Nicole and Twinette? We're rolling. Welcome to the other side, not even the other side of the mic, because we both have mics, but the other side of the interview situation. How are you feeling? Hello from the other side. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is your first time being interviewed on your podcast? Yes, formally. And it's feeling how? (laughs) Right now you're like, I want to (laughs) die. I mean, kind of. (laughs) I've been kind of dreading it all day, Um, but also excited. That's the same feeling that I have if I ever have to do public speaking, right? Where like the whole time before you're like, I want to die. How do I get out of this? So how do I, you know, make this not happen? And then you're so glad that afterwards. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you. I feel very honored to be trusted with uh, your first kind of flip-flop interview situation for your 200th episode, which is a lot of episodes, by the way. Thanks, girl. So tell me the idea behind being interviewed or kind of doing this special thing for your 200th episode. Yeah. So I feel like the idea came from actually a conversation we had um, where I was thinking about the 200th episode was coming and a couple different people, Ethan, who's my designer, he reached out to me being like, what are you going to do? What kind of special thing are you going to do? And we had talked about it and you said, well, hey, why don't I interview you? And then I thought about it for a while, a couple weeks and... I finally got up the guts and I was like, yeah, let's, let's do it. (laughs) And I set the intention on a real talk reflections episode. So the inspiration is to 
give listeners um, a little bit more of a window into my story and why I started the podcast. Because a big part of my interviewing style is I try to really let people tell their stories and not actually insert a lot of myself. That's pretty intentional on my behalf to not always be relating my own experiences. And so it's just the beginning of getting to share a little bit about me. And what was really cool was I reached out to listeners on our episode together saying, hey, submit questions. And I also sent out a newsletter to my people and I got a lot of questions. And I was just so grateful that people are really curious about different parts of my life. And I'm excited to get to answer a couple of them today. I'm not going to get to all of them, but it's it's kind of exciting. Right? To- <laughs> if we, we'd have a 10-hour episode, right, if we were getting to all of these wonderful questions that people asked. But yeah, we've picked out a couple that hopefully will touch on you know some of the things that maybe other people were curious about as well. So I am excited about that. Um, talk to me about what does it feel like to have now done 200 episodes? Like, what is that? Like, when I say that, what does that feel like to you? Hmm. It feels like a lot of time just because in the past two and a half years that I've had this podcast, so much has changed in my life and I've lived in so many different rooms and bedrooms and countries and states. And so it's, it's kind of cool that I feel like throughout all of the different transitions, the podcast has always been a constant. It's always been something every week that I show up to do. So it does feel like a lot of time. But in the same time, I also see other people in the podcast space who have like 300 or 400 episodes. And that just blows my mind, you know, to be like, okay, I could be there someday. So it feels exciting. It also still feels like I have so much more to learn. Like I can't even, I'm uncomfortable listening to my own podcast because it makes me cringe because I see all the things that like I'm doing wrong or that I want to grow on. And so I still feel like I have a lot of work to do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that ever changes, right? Like that we're growth-oriented people. I don't think you're doing anything wrong, but that's as a listener's perspective. But um, who was your first interview? What was your episode one? Yeah, it was with a good friend of mine named Susie Stefan, and she's actually been back on the podcast a couple times. And we met each other in Hawaii when I lived um, my junior year of college. I spent a semester on the island of Oahu. I went to college in Maine, and I wanted a totally different experience than the Maine small liberal arts community. I lived on Oahu. I lived by myself in this A-frame cabin at the back of a valley. It was a wild semester of solitude (laughs) and I met Susie there and she's a yoga teacher as well as an incredible runner and just a mentor to me and I had her on the podcast and at that point the podcast was Skype and so we talked via Skype and I think it was like a 20 minute long (laughs) conversation which is a lot shorter than what I do now because I think both her and I were a little bit like oh what do we do (laughs) and she's still someone I really feel close to and just is someone who's been a sounding board for me and this whole podcast evolution like I'm always comfortable calling her asking her what do you think about this Suze or should I do that and it's kind of cool that she's like the first person and still someone who is a huge part of this growth yeah so if if I could go back and essentially like interview you at that time right like right before you got on let's say like that Skype call your first call with her and if I were to ask you why you were starting the podcast what would your answer have been then and is it different now if someone were to ask you why do you do this yeah so it's the same to me um, which is cool I think I've gotten definitely more specific and clear on my intention with the podcast but when I began it it was because listening to podcasts changed my life And I wanted to give back to a medium that had given me so much and it opened my eyes and it helped heal me and provide me 
information for transformation and my own evolution. And so when I actually was in Hawaii that semester, I was living by myself and school was um, about like an hour away on the bus. And so I would, I was on the bus like three hours a day, which was wild. And I would go teach yoga in the downtown Honolulu. And that's when I started to listen to podcasts. And I found that listening to people's stories, unfiltered, honest, free content, it was just crazy. It changed my life. And so that summer when I came home to Boston, this was the summer before senior year of college. I remember I was on a run and I was thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do in my life because <laughs> those are just the things that come up on runs. And I had a moment where I was like, whoa, it was just one of those light bulb moments where you just have that knowing and almost feels like that a higher power is just talking right to you. And it said, you have to start your own podcast. And I remember coming back from the run and telling my mom. And my mom was like, no, don't start it. Because <laughs> she, her thing is that I always do too much and that I spread myself too thin. And which is true, totally true. And that I was about to head into my senior year of college where I, you know, I was a double major. I had two theses to write, just a lot of responsibility. But I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I want to do this. I want to do this. So I was just started researching more, learning more about it, looking at how other people in this industry who do it well, like, how do they do it? What do I like about their podcasts? So at that time, I'm giving you a much longer answer, but this is long form. <laughs> it's, all, it's, it's all good. There's no appropriate answer length. That's what you're here for, right? To tell your story. Yeah. So at that time, I mean, I started the name Running on Om because for me, running and yoga are the two, two physical, spiritual, mental, emotional practices that are kind of like the cornerstones of my life um, and wanted to have authentic, honest conversations with people about what inspires them, what challenges them, where they're headed, where they've come from, all of it. And I'd say the mission is still the same. It's changed a lot, the format. Like I now only do in person and do it with higher equipment and quality. I now spend up to 10 hours of editing time where at the beginning I didn't edit it at all. And I don't edit it for content. I edit it to have it be really like the transitions and the audio levels and everything be as professional as possible. Yeah, I love that. And I know, um, based on the questions that were submitted, that we'll talk a little bit more about kind of the nuts and bolts of podcast process. But I actually want to go back to something you said before about, um, you said that listening to podcasts at that time for you changed your life. I'm curious, is there anything specific that comes to mind? Like when you like say like it changed my life, like that to me feels like it was pivotal for you. Like what, how did it change your life? Yeah, such a good question. I, I think it opened my eyes to the possibility of that, like anything is possible. And that's so cliche to say, but it was Rich Roll's podcast, which is really the first podcast I really got into. What was cool is at that time, he actually was starting his podcast on another Hawaii island. And I was in Hawaii. It was just this weird thing. And he's been a mentor for me in the podcast journey. And I've had the honor of interviewing him and his wife. But hearing just the stories of people like who've overcome so much and had struggled so much and have been able to find their own pathway of healing and transformation was what changed my life to know that there's just so many ways to do it and to be human. And that there's so many ways in which you can relate to certain things. Like as a runner and as a yogi, it's not just like one, one style or one brand. You have to personalize it. And that if you're, you know, if you're of a certain religion, like beautiful, but you can also create your own religion. You can create your own spirituality and philosophy and outlook in life. And I think that's what podcasting gave me is it gave me permission to get inspired by so many different sources 
take it into my own being and then create my own philosophy on it all. Well, and especially with a show like his, where he does have, you know, they're not all kind of transformation stories, but there's definitely that element to it. And I'm curious, did you feel like you weren't having those kinds of super real, honest, here's how we've gotten over hard things, conversations, like in your actual day-to-day life? Like, was that why it was so impactful for you? Because it was presenting maybe like stories that you weren't seeing? Yeah, I think... I think it was that I actually wasn't hearing about things like as much of my day-to-day life about the things that I was really passionate about at that time. So I wasn't talking about yoga or running, which I could talk about till the cows come home. Like, <laughs> and that's where it's, it's like my family's not into that. I didn't grow up from a family that's like down to talk about running at the kitchen table. And so it was like I was finding people who wanted to talk about the things that I wanted to talk about. But I, I've always felt really privileged to have friendships where I am able to dive deep with friendships and be vulnerable and be honest. Um, but people who don't really like some of the people in my life at that point weren't really into like the niche things that I was into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so then hearing about stories of transformation and spirituality within like my context, my passions, it was like, whoa, there's other people out there like me. Right. That you feel like, oh, I'm not alone in this. Like that there's this yeah. whole world of people that, yeah. you know, are coming at this one subject matter, whether it's running or yoga from like all these different angles, that it's like something that you can really explore. Totally, totally. And that even Susie, who I mentioned was my first person I interviewed, I met her through her blog, actually, because I found her blog online. At that time, it was called Yoga for the Long Run. And I saw that she was in Hawaii on the same island as me. And I reached out to her when we started hanging out and trail running. So I was able to develop friendships. And even now in my life, so many of the people in my life are from yoga and running communities. But I, it's at that time, I didn't have as much of that in my life. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, And I know that running and yoga is stuff that we're definitely going to get into when we start diving into the listener questions. But what I thought would be fun, since I'm in charge of this interview, we have the listener questions, you know, that that we're going to be talking about, but I kind of want to bookend them with some fun, random questions of my own, just stuff that's completely not related to any of these other things, if you are game for that. Bring it, sister. So five questions on each side. So the first one, what's one skill or talent that you wish you were totally amazing at, but unfortunately are not dancing okay yeah any like just in general or a specific type of dance I just wish I could be one of those people who could just like break it down on the dance floor you know like I just don't have that coordination before I started practicing yoga I actually have I had a hard time telling my right and left sides like I'm not very coordinated <laughs> in some ways and so dancing I feel like you have to be able to have the beat the coordination just not like give a fuck what people think and just go for it and I always wish I had that and I think with a lot of people who've danced you know they danced throughout their childhood or high school and they did classes and really got into, you know, the practice of it. And I've never spent that time, nor do I have that natural raw (laughs) talent. But yeah, I wish I could dance. Okay. Okay. So you've obviously interviewed a lot of great people in the past 199 episodes. It's still still a large number. Um, Who is someone that you would be completely starstruck? Like if they were coming on your show that you would just be like, oh my God, oh my God. Like who's the person that really sticks out in your mind that would be like your ultimate dream need to do some deep yoga breathing before this person comes on type of guest? Whoa. Well... I don't know if I'd be starstruck. I don't know. I don't think starstruck is necessarily something that's like in how I, how I relate to the world because I kind of see us all as brothers and sisters. So even when I've met people who were people I was, you know, put up on a pedestal and then I meet them, I'm like, oh yeah, they're just as like normal as, or normal as that 
word that we've been talking about off air. Like they're just as human as the rest of us. But someone I'd love to interview who I would be stoked about interviewing is a guy named John Francis. And he wrote a book that I read my sophomore year of high school called Planet Walker. And it's about his journey walking around the U.S. and really the world. And for 17 of the years, he was silent. And he is such a revolutionary in so many ways, like as an environmentalist, as a communicator, as a thought leader. And I actually reached out to him via email two weeks ago because I'm headed to San Francisco this upcoming week. And I knew from his book, he lived in like the Marin County area and he wrote back to my email and I was so stoked. Um, And unfortunately we won't be there at the same time, but he wrote just a really beautiful email. And I told him that his book had changed my life. And he asked me the same thing you asked me, Nicole, which he said, what about it changed your life? And I loved that because oftentimes when you give someone a compliment, you know, they can just take it. But when someone spins it back to you and wants you to go a little bit deeper, I'm like, that's my kind of person. So what did you say to him in response? His book changed the way I thought about the power of listening. Something he said in his book was that when he was silent, at the beginning, he noticed that when people were speaking to him, he all of a sudden was no longer formulating his response in his head because he wasn't going to reply. He was just going to listen. And that he realized he'd been spending so much of his life when people were talking to him, actually just formulating responses instead of really being present for their words and for their energy. And it, it was one of those things that I remember just like being totally blown away by. And that when I listened to people, how about just listen to them instead of kind of getting ready to fire right back at them? Just holding them. Which is something in their that words. having spent time with you, I feel like you do very well. So that definitely, yeah, I can see that that would be really powerful. I hope you do get him on the show at some point. Yeah. That would be incredible. I told you this. Um, I saw him give a keynote speech at a conference a couple years ago and he was amazing. So <laughs> I will hold out hope that that happens at some point. Me too. It will. So this is a completely different question, right? So, um, and this stems from my roots of loving the Would You Rather game. I don't know if you ever played that, but okay. We, so, no, we have played it together off air. You and I? Yeah. Don't you remember when we went to the lot with Paul? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. I blocked that out. Um, okay. So would you rather have to cut off your own pinky finger, which then regenerates itself every night, meaning that you have to recut it off yourself every morning, or... Never be able to tell the difference between a baby and an English muffin. <laughs> oh, my God. This is so bizarre. Wait, a baby and an English muffin? Yeah, you can never tell the difference. Like, if someone's holding a baby, it looks well, like an English muffin or a baby. Or you don't know. Like, you never know which one is which. Like, they look the same to you. Okay. Well, I aspire to have children someday. And I want to be able to look at my child <laughs> and know that they're my child. And be able to, so I would definitely cut off my pinky every day because I want my kids to be seen. And to not be English friends. No, to I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> Figured we would loosen this interview up a little bit, right? Um, which ingredients would go into your perfect smoothie? Ooh. Um, kale, banana, mango. Some Vega protein and greens vanilla performance powder or whatever it's called. A scoop of nutso, nut butter, some almond milk. And I think that's it. That sounds good. I never really put nut butter in smoothies, but it sounds delicious. It gives it this extra little oomph, you know? So I feel like the smoothie lasts longer in your system 
and it has it adds this element like this very subtle texture to the smoothie even in a Vitamix which I know we both have and we love it just it's awesome what's the nut butter you mentioned what kind is it nutso oh yeah I've heard you talk about this before what remind me what it is again yeah so it's really cool it's a seven nut and seed butter so they, the woman who started it, I've had her on the podcast actually, and she had two sons who she adopted from Ukraine and both of them were malnourished and she was trying to figure out a way to give them as much protein as possible. And so what she did was she just took all the different nuts in her house and put them in a food processor because her kids weren't eating meat, like they wouldn't eat it. And so she made this nut butter concoction and they loved it. And it was incredible for them because they were growing and gaining weight and getting stronger. And people started to ask her for it. And so that's kind of where it started, the company. And it's it's thebomb.com. It's pretty expensive, but you can get it at Costco. Okay, I'm going to have to try that because that sounds delicious. Yeah, I'll bring you some next time. Okay. So the last of the random questions, you're in a couple months, I know your birthday is coming up, and you will be turning... The big 25, which is so funny. Um, What's one thing that you would love to do or experience between now and your birthday? Well, I actually can't believe I haven't told you this, but I've decided on my birthday. I mean, this kind of fits in, but I want to run 25 miles on my birthday. To okay. celebrate okay. 25. Does that count? Does that answer count? I mean, it can kind be whatever of? answer you want. Okay, so tell me about that. Why? Why do you want to do that? At the camp that I've worked at the past three years, the camp director, Nick, um, he always runs his age on his birthday. And last year he was turning 30 and he ran and I was there at camp when he was there and he finished his 30 miles on top of Burke Mountain, which is so freaking steep. It's insane. I don't even know what the grade is, but even driving up it in a car, we drove up it. So we were at the top with him and we made this like cool finish line and balloons and just to get to see like him battle through and then also celebrate his birthday in a way that was really personal. I've been thinking a lot about that, just doing something for me that like for me running is my expression of joy, of heartbreak, of everything. And so to get to actually do something on my birthday for myself that feels like an expression of my life and every single step of it, I want to do it. I like it. So it's August 3rd, right? Your birthday? Yeah. Yes, August 3rd. All right, 25 miles. Will you be here in Bend running these 25 miles? I hope so. Okay. Well, we'll talk about this. That sounds awesome. Well, if you want to bike with me, I know you're not running, but... I love it, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, I actually won't be here then. You'll be be hiking. I will be hiking, but I will send you 25-mile wishes from afar. So let's dive into some listener questions. Okay, girl. Um, So we have five picked out. So the first one, let's see. Mercedes writes, can you talk about your running and yoga journey more in depth and what running and yoga looks like for you now? So that's obviously a big question, but kind of however you want to tackle maybe the origin story of running and yoga um, and what that evolution has been like for you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, So running. I just realized this past week was the Boston Marathon. And I was thinking, I oftentimes tell people when they're like, oh, what came first, running or yoga? I mostly say yoga because I've been doing yoga in a much more serious way over the past 10 years. But I actually ran three miles of the Boston Marathon, the last three miles with my friend's dad when I was in third grade. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. That's super young. I love that. Okay. Yeah. And he is he's like this really rowdy Australian guy. I love him. John Lynch. And he actually got us medals like me and my friend at the time and her brother. And he got us medals when we finished, which we shouldn't have gotten, but (laughs) we did. And I still have the medal, actually. Um, So that experience, I remember walking with him to the car afterwards, and he could barely walk. He was, like, in so much pain. And I just 
remember thinking like 26.2 miles, that's insane. Um, and feeling so inspired by that. But as a kid, I didn't run. I didn't really take up athletics. I wasn't an athlete. I have celiac disease. And for a lot of my childhood, it was undiagnosed. And I think because of that, I didn't really have, I just wasn't fortified and wasn't really strong enough to pursue athletics. So fast forward to high school, I was struggling with depression and anxiety my freshman year of high school. And my mom and dad were just trying to brainstorm ways in which I could get healing and get some relief from what I was feeling. And my mom suggested that I go to yoga class with her. She wasn't a super serious practitioner, but she'd gone a couple times to this local studio. And it's a Baptiste Power Vinyasa studio. So Baptiste Yoga is created by this guy and it's a pretty specific sequence. Um, it's heated in a heated room. So you do sweat a lot and it's just a very spiritual style of yoga where, and I remember going to the first class and it moves pretty fast. And I remember going to the first class thinking it was so hard and hating it. And that evening I came home and I couldn't fall asleep because I had this energy that it almost felt like was awoke, was awakened in me. And so I kept on going back throughout freshman year. I'd go like once or twice a week to yoga class. And sophomore year, similar, I would dabble in it. You know, sometimes I'd end up going four times a week or whatever. But junior year, again, shit hit the fan. I was struggling more and just trying to find a way to really like take take my healing more seriously. And so that's when I started to go to yoga more regularly. And by senior year, I was going to yoga class six or seven days a week. And I would get my mom to drive me to school late in order to go to yoga class. Um, and it just, it totally changed my life. And I've said that statement now a bajillion times in this interview. But I'd say what yoga did for me was that it introduced me to myself. What do you mean? I was able to get really intimate with the thoughts that were in my head. Because even though you're moving in a yoga class... You're not talking to anyone. You're not having to show up or you're like you're not having to be anything. You can really be whatever you want to be on your yoga mat. You could go into child's pose the entire class. You can push yourself. You can hold back. Like you have to be in dialogue with your body in a real intimate way and that I'd never been asked to do before. Yeah, that's interesting. So you mentioned that it was a part, it wound up being a part of a kind of healing and, you know, I don't know if recovery is the appropriate word um, with depression and anxiety. Was that... Were you doing other things also to to work on that? I'm I'm always, I mean, obviously as someone who also has struggled with depression and these things, I'm always kind of curious about people's stories with that as much as you obviously feel comfortable sharing. Um, kind of like what treatment looked like for you when you were that age? Yeah. So, well, my freshman year of high school, I dealt with um, a stalker. I had a stalker and it was a really traumatic experience. Oh my God. Yeah, and it was pretty horrible. And from that experience, my school recommended I start to go into therapy. And that, and so I had a therapist I saw in high school, and I didn't see her all the time. Um, but with like therapy was a part of the treatment, yoga then became a really big part of the treatment. And my family was an, an incredible support system for me at that time, and so my relationships to them. Yeah, well, I'm curious, you know, obviously yoga and specifically this style of yoga have had a really big impact on you. And it sounds like, you know, that happened relatively soon, you know, with, with after you started doing it. But really kind of getting down to like brass tacks, like how long did it take? Because you, you mentioned going to the first class and it was so hard and you weren't you know, going that regularly afterwards. Like, was there a point where everything just kind of clicked and you were like, 
I get this, like this is home for me. Or like, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, especially with yoga, I have heard from other people, both about running and yoga, that like they just can't seem to get into it, right? Like that it's one of those things that they don't love it right away so that they don't keep going with it. So I'm curious, like, was it like a kind of instant love for you or did you really have to push through some stuff in order to get to that place? I had to push through a lot. It was not natural for me. I'm not one of those people who's like extremely naturally bendy or flexible. So it's not necessarily like it even felt super great on my body during, but it was afterwards that I felt like this intense like awakening of energy and so it was I think probably maybe like two and a half or three years into doing it my junior year of high school is when I actually started to enjoy it during the class and that was like this huge shift I don't think there was like one class that I can say but it's like a language where you have to learn the names of the postures kind of how they fit together into your body the different alignment and that's when it really started to click and when I was going more often I mean I think yoga or running, if you do it once a week, great. You're going to feel good after the class. But if you really want something to change your life, you have to do it more regularly. And that applies to anything. And so I think that was the same with yoga is that like I had to do it a couple times a week for it to begin to change my life. Yeah. I mean, the two things that you just touched on, like one, the power of consistency, right? Like we never want that to be the answer. We want the answer to be sexier than that. But if you do something regularly as you just spoke to, like there will be a different experience from if you just do it every once in a while. And there was also, okay, I'm now actually remembering, there was a huge moment where I was challenged, you know, for the first time to make it my own. I'd been going to classes in high school and really dedicated to my practice. And it was the summer in between high school and college. And I went on a service trip to Nicaragua for three weeks with my high school. And there was 10 boys on the trip and two male teachers with us. And we were building libraries in this pretty mountainous region in Nicaragua. And, you know, there's no internet. There's obviously no yoga classes. And so I had to practice there on my own and figure it out. You know, figure out like what yoga meant to me outside of a classroom when I was getting to be around people or having a teacher lead me through it. I had to figure out how do you practice yoga by yourself? How do you create a class? How do you create that experience where you feel as fulfilled or even more fulfilled doing it by yourself than with other people around you? Yeah. So do you remember, and this might be like too specific of a question, do you remember that first, like, uh, I got to figure out my own yoga practice today. Like, what do I do? Do you remember what that felt like? Well, I'd done some research before I went to Nicaragua. Like I brought some, I was getting really into reading about yoga. And so I brought a couple books with me that had different sequences and in different kind of templates in order to create like your own home practice. So I think I felt pretty guided, but I do, I don't remember that first practice, but I have a couple memories of some practices I did there, like in these teeny little bedrooms. Cause I was the only girl on the trip. I always got my own room, which was pretty sweet. And the boys would have to share rooms. So I would just get to do yoga in my little bedroom. And one morning I was staying with my host family and they didn't know I was practicing yoga and they're farmers, you know, they're up at 5.30. I was up with them at 5.30 and I'm practicing yoga and I'm trying to do a headstand and I just ate it. <laughs> I remember like falling out and like crashing onto the floor and my host mother like runs into the room, like yelling at me in Spanish, being like, what just happened? And I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, you know, first off, like if you don't practice yoga, that's not something in your culture. You're, it's kind of bizarre. You know, you're putting your body in these weird positions and breathing. 
And she just was totally confused. Right. And with a language barrier, how do you explain? I was trying to stand on my head. Uh, here's why. And then the best part about it was like, I got kind of like a little, like uh, my forehead started bleeding. So I got actually a little gash. And so then when my teacher saw me that day, they're like, Julia, what, you know, is everything okay? What happened? That's hilarious. So you mentioned that you had read some books. I'm very not well-versed in yoga related books. Um, for anyone who's listening who might be interested in taking kind of yoga to another level through reading, was there any book or maybe a couple of books that stood out for you as like, this is a great read if you want to go deeper into yoga? Yeah. So most of the books I actually read about yoga were less, like I read a couple more instructional books. Most of them were by Baron Baptiste, which is the style of yoga that I grew up practicing. But a lot of them were about kind of like Buddhism and mindfulness And so as cliche as all the yogis or new age people out there are going to be like, this is so cliche, but Pema Chodron, man. Not cliche, she's the best. She is the best. Like straight up, this woman is just to me like a living saint, truly. Um, And I just reading Things Fall Apart changed my life. When Things Fall Apart, excuse me. And then Thich Nhat Hanh, his books on mindfulness and kind of bringing awareness to everything you do even it can be just smiling at someone can be like an act of love and connection smiling at a stranger and I actually in college I was a double major in religion and ethnomusicology and my sophomore year of college I was taking a class called like the Buddhism um, Buddhism in Tibet it was awesome and my friend and I saw that Thich Nhat Hanh was coming to New York City like that weekend. And so we road tripped from Maine to New York City to go meet Thich Nhat Hanh and study with him in person. And that was so much fun. That was, and that weekend, it was also the, um, the Occupy movement was in New York that weekend. So New York was just on fire. And we're coming from like this small little college in Maine where, you know, nothing's really happening on the weekends to New York City. And it was so cool to get to meet Thich Nhat Hanh and We did this amazing meal together where we ate mindfully and talk about taking yoga like outside of the mat and putting yoga in the rest of like putting yoga in action. What was amazing was in the meal, you had to put your fork down in between every bite. And it made me, it just blew my mind because it made me realize like I'm always holding your spoon or you're always holding your fork while you're eating instead of actually just having to pause. And so that's like to me the yoga food. That's super interesting. Okay, we could go on off off on a lot of tangents yeah. about this, but yeah, no, that's really interesting. I mean, I like I like what you're speaking to about this idea of taking yoga off the mat too, right? Because I think that it's really easy to get stuck in this idea that yoga is a 75 minute class taught by a teacher. Totally. But in the stories that you just shared, it's you know reading about mindfulness. You know, Pema Chodron's not writing about yoga specifically, but that there's a tie in there, and that then you're creating your own practice, and that then you can take those principles into. I don't know. I think that's like an interesting expanded view of it, especially for someone like me who doesn't really know that much about yoga. So it's interesting to hear you speak about that. Yeah. No, for sure. And that like even as a yoga teacher now, you know, I try to empower my students to oftentimes set intentions in class and then take those intentions with them for the rest of their day. Yeah. So with yoga teaching, obviously you just mentioned the specific service trip that you went on. You were creating yoga for yourself the first time and you said that was the summer before college, right? Yeah. So what happened with your yoga practice once you entered college? Like how did that evolve for you? 
Yeah, so I my freshman year of college, I ended up doing a 200-hour certification, which if you think about it, it's kind of like your undergrad in yoga teaching. And I did that in Boston. And so every other weekend, I'd go home from Maine to Boston for a weekend immersion with my teachers and a group of people there. And then my freshman winter, I started something called the Bates Yoga Kula, which was basically a free yoga studio at my school that had stu- classes for students, faculty, and staff. And so I was kind of thrown into the wolves. Like I got my certification and because my school didn't have a yoga program or any yoga infrastructure, I was like, I'm going to create this. I'm going to start this revolution here. And I was teaching upwards of 80 people, most classes, which is pretty unheard of for a new yoga teacher. You usually would be in a smaller studio and having to teach 80 people and having no clue what I'm doing. It was wild. Yeah, I mean, I think of yoga classes that I've been in that have had like six people, eight people. Like, I can't even imagine, like, as a practitioner, being in a room with 80 people, yet alone being the teacher of that experience. Yeah, it was crazy. It was in the old dining hall in my school. They gave us a space for yoga. And so there was enough room for everyone to practice. And that was really cool. And that year, just I was really devoted to my practice throughout college, my yoga practice, the mat practice. I was up at 6 a.m. every single morning, putting on putting in an hour to two hours every morning on my own, doing self-study, self-practice. And so similar to the kind of the groundwork I created in Nicaragua for myself, once I did a yoga teacher training, I just had more and tools to be able to create a really enriching home practice. And then my sophomore year of college, I was just wanting to continue to refine my skills as a yoga teacher and learn more. And so I did a 300-hour certification in Boston. So that was the same thing, going back and forth. So I almost felt like my first two years of college, I was kind of in two colleges. I was in, like, school, academic school, and then I was in yoga school. Yeah, I mean, that to me brings up questions of, like... I don't know, the kind of self-care that's involved in being able to sustain what's essentially a lot of work, right? Like not just the work that you're doing as a double major in college, especially freshman year, being new to college, so being new to that whole environment just personally, and then to be doing that every weekend. Like what is it about you that like enables that kind of like high level of kind of creativity and discipline and output? Damn, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think that is a part of a gift that I do have, which I feel really blessed to do, which which I feel really blessed about is that I do have a tremendous amount of energy and a, a tremendous amount of fire in me, like so much passion. When I fall in love with things, it's I'm so all in and I want to give them all of me. And so I think that's where a lot of it comes sources from is that I have a lot of things I'm deeply passionate about and I want them a part of my life every single day. And so I do make sacrifices. For example, in college, I didn't party. I don't drink. I didn't do things that I knew would not allow me to wake up at 6 a.m. and have a fulfilling yoga practice. And some people, I mean, my mom especially was just like, you're not being a college student. You know, you're not going out. You're not having like that, those kinds of fun, crazy evenings. Because for me, like my health and being rested was a priority, because I knew that in order to be able to upkeep all the, the work that I was doing, that I needed to have enough sleep. And nutrition was huge. Just really making sure that I was always being nourished and eating really good food. And another thing for me is that every morning I would spend probably the first two and a half hours alone every morning. So that was a combination of being on my yoga mat and eating breakfast on my own. 
And I think just setting myself up for success in college when you're around so many different people and you're having so much social interaction, just making sure I was like really grounded in my center and setting my intention for the day in solitude. Yeah. So obviously yoga has been a part of your life for a really long time. Um, has there ever been, I don't even know if burnout is the right word, obviously, like what we just spoke to, <laughs> I think burnout could be something that happens, but was there ever a time where you either fell out of love with it or you kind of questioned the role that yoga had in your life or has it kind of been loving it and it serving you the whole time? Yeah, I think that can be on a spectrum because there's definitely some days, you know, I would practice and it's not very glamorous and it wasn't that fun and you can feel bored bored, and you can feel like you're kind of just going through the motions. But I think that's the case with any practice that if you show up to it on a daily basis, there's going to be some days that just aren't that spectacular. The big turning point for me where running came in was when I felt like my yoga practice like overall wasn't serving me as much as I'd wanted to. So it did come to that kind of turning point where my junior year of college, I was feeling like my yoga practice was no longer my own. I was always thinking about my yoga students when I was on the yoga mat. I was like, how can I explain this the best? How can I sequence this class? It no longer just felt like my thing that was nourishing me. And so that's when I kind of got the inspiration. How about I try to use my body in a different way and, and tap into that internal fire in a new way. And so that's where running, like I started to run because I loved being outside. I loved, I love walking. I love hiking. And I'd go to the cemetery that was near my school a lot after school to go walking. And one day I was like, you want to know what? Like, why don't I try running? That's yeah, that's interesting. It sounds like you have kind of this skill, if that's the right word, of allowing your relationship with things to evolve, that, you know, yoga, it seems like went through a couple of different evolutions. And when you started to realize that you were more interested maybe in the teaching aspect of it, or that's where you were getting a lot of fulfillment, then it was maybe pulling back a little bit from your really long morning mat practices and integrating running it, you know, like that it seems like you've given yourself permission to change and shift. Yeah. Thanks for acknowledging that. I mean, I think I'm still working on that to be able to continually listen to myself and to be able to say, okay, is, how is this serving me here? And how can I let it shift and change into something else? Because there has been periods of time, you know, where I remember maybe it was the summer between, was it the summer after college? I took a, I really stepped back from my mat practice and that was okay. Like giving yourself the permission, even though you can love something and it can be a really big part of your identity to step back from it. And right now, even I'm getting back into yoga teaching and that's brought me so much joy here in Bend. I moved here about five months ago. And at the beginning, I was just like, you know, get landed. Don't try to do everything at once because that's my tendency to want to feel like totally rooted in a part of this community. And so I've given myself time to begin to teach yoga. And even just this past weekend, I got to teach twice. And both classes were such a reminder to me that teaching yoga is one of my favorite things in the world. What is it about your teaching style? Like what makes you, you as a teacher? Mm. I feel so present when I'm teaching. So I think I feel like when I'm in the yoga classroom with my students, I am 110% there. I think it's one of the places in the world that I'm most awake and aware out of anywhere. Because when you can't, you can't skip a beat when you're holding space for people when you're telling them breath to breath, movement to movement. So I think my presence is something that I really bring to my students. I definitely do bring a level of playfulness to the mat because I know for myself, I can take myself too seriously in my yoga mat. So I, sometimes it's like, 
I try to be the teacher that I wish someone could be to me, you know? And so I think I bring a lot of playfulness. I do bring a a good amount of fire to my students. I always make them do a ton of core work. (laughs) And sometimes they love me and hate me for it. (laughs) And then I also really bring like my real life into teaching. And so I try to tell stories when I'm teaching, whether they're they're the stories of the postures and sometimes my own internal experience of the postures and how my students could relate to that or a story from my life and how that for me has been showing up on my yoga mat. Mm, Interesting. I'll have to take a class of yours. (laughs) So, you know, you mentioned the first thing that you mentioned in that was your ability to be really, really present when you're in class. And maybe I'm thinking of this like too practically, but obviously there's times where like you have a stressful day or like something goes wrong and you're, you know, really frenzied and stressed and you're on your way to teach this yoga class. Like what it, maybe it's your mindfulness practice. I don't know, but how do you drop into that space in order to leave like essentially all like the nonsense or the stress or the anxiety outside the door of the yoga studio to fully show up? Like, do you have a a centering practice or like, how do you do that on like a tangible day-to-day basis? Yeah, I mentioned already this, but intention setting. So I always set an intention at the beginning of my practice with my students and I encourage them to do the same, but that's a way for me to kind of really get grounded in spirit and God and just keep it as simple as one word. So one word that I want to embody during that class. And so this Saturday morning, it was patience with myself, with my students. I was feeling really impatient that morning about a couple things out of the yoga sphere. And I noticed I was bringing that energy into the classroom. And so just reminding myself and being gentle to myself with the intention and then bringing my students back to their intention numerous times throughout the practice. That's huge. And then I also feel like yoga is this really weird space where I'm oftentimes able to forget about the things because I'm focused on other people. I'm focused on serving them. I get out of my own self, out of my own drama, my own mental dialogue, because I have to be there for them. And I know teachers have experienced that, you know, teachers of classrooms or healers or caregivers or doctors, like people, when you're serving other people, there's something so beautiful because it also, you serve yourself. Yeah. I mean that you can actually like get out of your own way in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. And what's cool is like, there was two summers um, in between school and college that I was teaching in Boston and I was teaching upwards of 20 classes a week, which is a lot. And I noticed during that summer, that was like one of the most present I'd ever felt in my life because so much of the day I was spent in a yoga classroom having to be super plugged in to the earth force. 20 classes a week is so much. I know. It was wild. Oh my gosh. Um, I'm just curious. uh, This is kind of a personal selfish question. How much planning do you do before? Like, do you go into the yoga class with like a completely mapped out hour or whatever in your head? Or I'm just, I'm like so curious on like the kind of tactical, almost like not like business side of this, but Yeah. yeah, kind of. So it depends what style of yoga I'm teaching and it depends like how often I'm in the flow of teaching. So for example, that summer that I was teaching 20 classes a week, At that point, I was so in the flow of it that I did not prepare for most classes because I usually would have every week or it would almost change every day at that point, like something I was really inspired by in my yoga practice. So maybe it was a pose and I would see with the students that came into the classroom, I was like, you know, what's their level, ability level? What's their injury status? And then from there, I would work them into a peak pose. But now I'm teaching in a Baptiste studio here, and that's a pretty set sequence. So you don't really necessarily have to prepare the sequence because it's going to be there. But there's a lot of different ways to teach it. So I always marinate, like before I enter a room, 
I always have preparation. But then the class I taught on Saturday was not a Baptiste class. It was a regular vinyasa flow. And so that means like flow yoga means linking movement to breath, which is so broad. And every teacher, in my opinion, has their own interpretation of that style of yoga. So I did a fair amount of preparation for that class. But what was cool was the students who came that day were fairly advanced. And so I got to kind of up level a lot. So you have this toolbox as a yoga teacher, and I imagine it's it'll just get bigger the longer you teach. And so then from there, the tools can just kind of be pulled out when when you see the when the, you see they're needed. Yeah. So it totally depends. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. So you mentioned you know the time during college when yoga wasn't serving you in quite the same way, and you said, okay, hey, I go on this walk around the cemetery. Maybe I'm going to try actually running. What was the evolution of running in your life? from kind of that point on, like even up until today? Yeah. So that, that run was magical. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure it hurt a little bit because I was definitely out of cardiovascular shape, but I came back and I was in tears and I called my mom and just was like, that was amazing. Why, why haven't I been doing that? Like that's, that's a part of who I am that I've been denying. And then from there, my junior year of college, I just ran for fun, ran recreationally. And as someone who loves to be a student of whatever I'm studying, I definitely did a lot of reading my junior year. And when I was living in Hawaii, that's when I was listening to a lot of podcasts during that time. And I started to listen to a lot of podcasts on endurance training and physiology. And I got really into film Avatone and the heart rate training. <laughs> and then my summer in between junior and senior year of college, a friend from Bates who ran at, on, at Bates, he was like, you should come teach yoga at this running camp I work at. And the fact that there was running camps for high schoolers still blows my mind. That's like a thing. Um, and it's awesome because I love the kids I've gotten to meet through it. And so when I was working at that camp that summer, a couple of the other counselors convinced me to join the cross-country team at my college. So two weeks before the season started, I joined which is crazy that the coach even let me on the team because I love her, but she's fairly strict. And a lot of the people on the team, you've had to be on the team for like four years or have been recruited. And I don't know why she let me on the team. Yeah, I, well, I mean, maybe they, it was the right fit at the right time, right? You never know. Um, I'm curious how you think that in your life specifically, running and yoga complement each other like what do they or yeah how do they complement each other and what do they both give you mm. how do they complement each other I think they're both opportunities for me to connect to God that's just like the most simplistic way of thinking about it to me and then to connect to God and connect to kind of my inner life force and so there are two different ways that I can find that mind body spirit connection and plug right in and there are two practices that, to me, I can do anywhere. They don't require, I mean, yes, yoga requires a mat, running requires shoes, but they don't require a lot. They're so simple. They're such simple expressions of the gratitude I feel for being alive. So the fact that you were just doing yoga so seriously and then decided to essentially like bring in this completely other sport maybe another question is like what does running give you that yoga doesn't or yes. vice versa okay yeah yeah so i'd say the biggest thing running gives me that yoga doesn't is the ability to be outside mm, okay i'm someone who thrives on sunlight and sunshine and fresh air like if I, I love working outside. I love like being outside as much as possible. 
Um, and so that's, I'd say the main thing running gives me is the ability to be outside and then also to experience my body in a different pace. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I totally get that. I mean, and I feel like obviously you push yourself in both, but it's probably a very different experience for you. Yeah. I'd say for me, my yoga practice is a lot more about surrender and my running right now is more about surrender because we'll get to this, but right now I'm just running for health and for joy. And hopefully at some point I'll be able to return to competition, but right now it's just for health. And so both of them do have elements of surrender in them, but running definitely takes like running hurts at times in a way that yoga doesn't necessarily hurt physically. Mentally it can hurt when you really start to see your demons on your yoga mat and get really intimate to the thoughts and the samskaras, which we call the patterns in our minds that hurts sometimes. Yeah. So you mentioned potentially returning to competition in the future. Is that something with running that like when you look ahead at the next, however many years that you're really interested in like the more structured, like training and racing? Totally. Yeah. I'm really excited for when I'm going to be able to do that. I've had some health challenges over the past year that have just taken me out from competition. And I'm so, I'm excited for when I'm going to be able to be in a place where I'm able to really periodize my training and get really specific and get to build up towards races. And yeah, I think it'll be such a celebration. What are your dream couple of races that you would love to do? Um, well, last week was Boston Marathon and last year I had the honor of guiding a blind runner for the Boston Marathon and it was just probably one of the best days of my life because I've grown up in Boston my entire life and being on the other side of it and receiving so much love literally every single step of the way. There wasn't a single moment you don't hear someone you don't hear someone yelling at you and supporting you. And it's like just a tunnel of love, that marathon. And it's in my home city. And so I definitely would love to qualify for Boston. That's for sure. And then this is a pretty big, a big wild dream, but I would, I want to run Western States 100 miler. And in order to do both of those, you have to qualify for both races. Right. Which I know you and I have talked off air a lot about kind of the nature of goal setting and growth and both of those, like since they have a qualification aspect speak to exactly what you said that it's, you have to grow into that goal. You can't just like, Oh, I'm going to do Western States. I'm just going to show up. No, like like, there's going to be so many milestones along the way and so many other races along the way to get me to the starting line of either of those races. But I know I want to do Western States. I think I've shared this with you on a real talk reflections, but this past winter I was watching like Western States, um, some finish line videos of people finishing And I just started crying and I was like, okay, you definitely want to do this race (laughs) because it's just something about the odyssey that people go through. I've interviewed so many people for the podcast who've won Western States and it just sounds like such an incredible race, but not just a race. It's like an odyssey. Do you think that about that event specifically or about the idea of running a hundred miles? I think both. I think running a hundred miles odyssey no matter what for sure but i think western states there's just so much history and camaraderie and because you have to qualify for it like in order to get there as we've talked about all the hard work that you've had to do just makes it even that much more special yeah i'm excited i mean personally i'm excited to see this happen over the next however many years i will come and cheer for you and crew for you it's gonna be so Aww, fun yeah. um so obviously we've talked about a bunch of different aspects of running and yoga is before we move on is there anything else about either your current practices in each of those things or anything that you wanted to share 
I think for me, the biggest turning point in my running was when I was in Ethiopia. And I think being there just opened my eyes to what a privilege it is to run here for fun. Because in Ethiopia, people don't really run for fun. You run because you're pursuing professional running. And there was what's crazy is there's thousands of people in Ethiopia pursuing professional running. It's not just like a couple people, like not a couple, of course there's hundreds in the US, but much less. And that was wild to me to see really running as a way out. And then for me in my life, it's like running's my way of like an expression of health and joy. And to also learn about like the training there and the training conditions, people ran in Ethiopia, oftentimes in gravel, dirt, roots, rocks. I never ran on a flat like paved road when I was there. There was no manicured roads. And the amount of like surface strength you build in your lower leg and your calves and your whole body from running on that kind of terrain, damn. <laughs> so that was really cool to just get to after college is when I went to Ethiopia and to get such a different experience of what running means to people and then also actually like the training of it just opened my eyes. Yeah, I love that. The last question that I want to ask about this, if you look ahead at maybe, I don't know, the next year, like you're, you know, you're here in Bend, a little bit more settled, you know, you've been here, you said five months, what's something within yoga, either as a teacher or within your own practice, and then something with running that you would love to either experience or do, or just like something when you look ahead at the next year that you would love to kind of bring into your life in those realms? Mm, yeah. I would love to start teaching yoga regularly every week. Right now I'm just subbing yoga classes and on the on the road to get some regular yoga teaching spots, but it's been pretty hard to break into the community here because of how yoga teach, teachers are just so saturated the field. And so I'd love to be able to have some regular classes and develop that kind of community that I had at Bates and I've had at other studios here where I really get to know my students and see them on a week-to-week -week basis and see their growth and be a part of their life. As far as running goes, oh, I'm just so excited to run on the trails here this summer and to get to explore new trails. Like, I don't even know what trails there are. I mean, there's a lot of trails that I've run on thus far, but I'm sure there's, excuse me, there's a trail called Green Lake that my roommates and Lauren have spoken about, and it sounds magical, and I'm so excited to run Green Lake. I also haven't been there, but that's a place for camping and hiking and stuff too, so yeah. maybe we will go adventuring to Green Lakes. I love it. Um, so the next thing that we're going to talk about is the podcast, another big topic that I know that people are super interested in, and this question comes from Emma, and Emma writes, Hello, Julia. I just wanted to reach out to you and tell you about how much I enjoy listening to your podcast and how much it has changed me. I was impressed by how funny, kind, caring, creative, imploring, loving, and spiritual you were. Due to your podcast, I've actually considered considered one day starting my own podcast. I would love to hear some information about how to start up and the background of the whole deal. Yeah. Well, thanks for all those words. <laughs> wow. Um, totally touched to be even called funny because that's just not something I think about myself <laughs> as, you know, like my dad is hilarious. I am just, I don't really got that gene. Um, well, apparently Emma thinks differently. So. Yeah, Emma, <laughs> you're the bomb. So Starting a podcast. Um, I could say a lot about this. I'm going to try to be direct. Get clear on what you want to share with people about. So like, what are you passionate about, Emma, that you want to bring to the light? So getting really, really specific, because I think with the podcasts that I notice that do really well, 
it can be a couple different things. It can be because the host is totally bomb and they maybe already have a platform where they're ready to bring on, you know, like op the Oprah Winfrey's. But then uh, there's also people who are doing some really niche things. So whether it's like fly fishing is your thing and you want to bring on the best fly fishers in the world or just getting as clear as possible and specific as possible. Because some days I feel like, and this is something I just almost said about the title of Running on Ohm, I'm like, oh, I wish I could be even more specific. You know, people have said to me, you know, your podcast would be more successful if it was just with trail runners or if it was just with yogis. But that's just not me. So that's not true to me. So I can't do that. Even though, yeah, maybe it would be more successful if I was even more specific. But with Emma, just get clear, girl. Get so pinpoint what you want to share, who you want to bring on. And also know that it's a ton of work. And so with podcasting, like there, you get the published product on iTunes. It'll appear in your podcast app and you're like, oh, this is awesome. 45 to 60 minutes of like free content. But there's a lot of work and hours that go into it. And so just asking yourself the question, like what, you know, do you want to do that kind of back work, that editing, the production, learning about kind of the audio equipment? Like, does that light you up enough? Or does the idea of producing a podcast let you up enough that you're willing to do the kind of the back stuff? Yeah, Because there's different ways to, I think, share conversations that aren't just through podcasting. Whether that be through journalism or question and answers or blogging or whatever. And I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying, like, know that there's a lot of other things that may not be as fun. Well, and when you were talking about kind of your origin story for your show, it sounded like not just that there were specific kind of topics that you wanted to talk about, but what I really heard like truth come out from you was that you wanted to do this medium, like that it was podcasting. And so yes. like to your point, just because, I mean, obviously podcasting has hit like an insane tipping point, right? And it's like super popular, but there's lots of mediums for storytelling or content sharing or that type of stuff that just because it seems like everyone has a podcast doesn't mean, so like I love what you said before about like you wanted to be in that medium, Exactly, right? exactly, yes. Yeah. Because this is the medium that I consume the most. I like reading. I don't love reading. I don't, I straight up don't watch TV. I cannot tell you the last time I sat in front of a TV. I don't watch Netflix online. I don't know what shows are popular. That's just not the medium I consume. I consume podcasts every single day. Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, and, and again, obviously like having, we could, you and I, I think together could have a whole show on just like our own like podcasting experience, right? Because we approach it super, super differently. We totally um, do. And something that you've said to me kind of off air conversations that we've had ha has been exactly about that, that there isn't only, like there's isn't only one way to get from point A to point B, right? Like it's not, like you mentioned before, spending sometimes upwards of 10 hours editing an episode that doesn't have to be, for example, Emma's journey, right? No, so, no, no. Yeah. No, and that there are so many different ways of doing it. I mean, you and your show, Real Talk Radio, you release seasons. So you release eight episodes at a time. Whereas I've taken the format of releasing one to two podcasts a week. Right now I'm doing two a week. And so it's there's so many different ways of doing it. And so I think, again, with Emma, just getting clear on, like, look at the people who are doing podcasts the way you like to do it or the way you like to listen. Like, what are they doing that you like? And what would you be true to you about that that you could also do? Yeah. I mean, I think you and I also tend to really like the like long form conversation style and it makes me forget how many like single host to like short shows there are, right? Oh the people that are doing like 15 minute things that it's just them. And as far as editing goes or that, like that's going to be so much, I mean, I hate to use the word easier, but like easier from a production yeah, standpoint. Totally. Totally. And like even this past week, I got interviewed for someone's podcast. That was a 20 minute interview. And it was one of the worst experiences of my interviewing life. 
because I felt so rushed by this woman and it didn't feel organic or natural and it felt like she had an agenda. And so it's like knowing what kind of experience you want to create. Some people can do the 20 minute and can rock it. That's not for me, the medium that speaks to me. I think, so maybe I'm projecting, but I'd love to hear your kind of perspective on this. And I think it speaks into Emma's question as well. One of the reasons that I put off starting a podcast for so long was because I had zero knowledge or experience of the kind of technical side of this, right? That like, yes, I know how to subscribe to a podcast and like push play on iTunes, but like how to get it to that point, like felt to me very dear in headlights. And I'm curious if you had either audio editing knowledge or like where were you starting from and what was most helpful for the kind of early days of you learning how to do it? Like for someone like, obviously we're, we don't know Emma, but let's say she doesn't have any idea how to do that kind of stuff. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I had no clue straight up, like no knowledge of how to do any of this. And one of the biggest resources was just Google like Googling everything, Google, what, how do I do this? How do I do that? Reading different resources and manuals. And then the biggest shift for me with like the audio editing was I went to a podcasting intensive in New York, upstate New York in 2014. And it was a week long intensive where it wasn't just for podcasters. It was people who do kind of audio interviewing. And during that week, I learned a lot about this editing program that I now use. And we talked a lot about like the art of interviewing. And we, that was the week that a lot of things changed for me getting the actual help. So that's another thing to think about even. It's like, I don't even know if there's courses online per se, but being able to seek out that kind of resources. Well, and I think that also speaks to the reason that this is such a good fit for you is because you have that curiosity of, yeah, I'm going to go to a week intensive. Like that's like, to me, that also sounds awesome. Right. But it might not for everyone. So like knowing that you have the kind of curiosity to learn more and get better, I think is an important part too. Totally. So you mentioned that you used Skype at the beginning. Um, so I'm going to ask you some kind of like real specific, like how were you recording and how were you editing like your first, let's say couple of episodes? Yeah. So I'd say like my first, maybe 125 were all done on Skype. And all of them were recorded via Skype with this program called Call Recorder. And then I would edit them in GarageBand. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I still have an intro and an outro to each podcast episode. And that's actually the thing that takes me like the longest amount of time in the post-production is I write out a script for the intro and outro. And that's something I'm still kind of grappling with is that I know some people really don't like hearing about sponsorship on episodes um, because they feel like they hear about advertisement everywhere. But at this point for me, in order to make the podcast sustainable, a medium, I have to have payment for the time and work I do. And I do feel weird about it in the sense that like when I started the podcast, my intention was never to make money. It was just to share conversations. And now it's come to a point where if you spend like 20 to 40 hours a week on it, it is a job. And so it's now like a part of my job. And that's something I'm still kind of like wrapping my head around is oftentimes people will ask me, oh, what do you do for work? You know, and the podcast is work, but it's also what I love to do. (laughs) And so I'm kind of at this place now where I'm figuring that out. And both you and I have started using the Patreon platform, which I'm really stoked about. It's a pretty cool thing where... Listeners can donate for as little as $2 a month and get free exclusive access to me, to insider access to my podcast, coaching opportunities, some really exciting like kind of rewards in exchange for giving back. And what I think about is I just think about like, okay, $2 a month, if that's the amount you're going to give. If you listen to eight episodes a month, that's like eight plus hours of free content. And if that's actually benefiting your life, like 
$2 isn't that much. And I have felt kind of a block wanting to ask my listeners for money because I do want this to just be free. But it's also, as I've shared, it's like come to this juncture where I now need to support myself as an adult. Yeah. I mean, and that, but I think that obviously, you know, she didn't specifically ask that in her question, but you're speaking to like the evolution of, of this, right. That if you are committed to producing the best quality content and, you know, especially for you doing in-person interviews, that means oftentimes traveling, right. To get to those people, to do this type of stuff, to produce this. Like, I think it's, I'm actually really glad that you're speaking to the truth of what it takes, you know, cause someone could just, you know, go to running on home and, and download an episode and really enjoy it, but not think about like what it actually takes to make that happen, like how much work it is, how dedicated you are. And there's so yeah. much hustle. I mean, like Thursday morning, I was up at like 530 like, to finish editing a podcast because I'm right now trying to release two a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And so always like just there's a lot of hustle involved in it. Yeah. I and mean, and- the, and the amount like amount of people that I ask to be in the podcast who say no to me is ginormous. And then the amount of people that say yes and the amount of times I had to ask them to say yes is also ginormous. Like I'd say most people, it takes at least three to four emails to get them to even reply to you. Wow. So people will think like, oh, I get these sweet people on my podcast. Yeah, I feel really grateful to have them, but I've also bothered them like a trillion times. Like persistence is really what I'm saying here is if like this is what you want to do. You have to be persistent. And that fire, which I spoke to earlier, that fire needs to be there. Yeah. So, and now that you're doing things in person, obviously it's not Skype call recorder and GarageBand. What, um, what do you use now as far as like software or equipment, um, for your setup now? I use a program called Hindenburg to record it. And it's actually made by this, um, manufacturer in Denmark. And the cool thing about Hindenburg is if you have any questions on the program there, if you write to them, I've actually Skyped the guy who founded the program and asked him questions like on Skype and got like a whole tutorial help session. I just was totally into that. Like, that's so cool. Like, I feel like if you wrote to like Microsoft, it's not like you're going to get to talk to the founder of Microsoft. You know, I loved that. It felt really grassroots. And then for my mics, I've worked with this um, company in Boston called Boston Light and Sound, this amazing guy named Lee Downs. And he was the guy who helped me figure out the setup for the actual mics I use and the transmitters because my goal is to be able to have all my mics and sound equipment fit into a box that could fit into an overhead thing in an airplane so I could take the podcast with me wherever I traveled. So if anyone wants to get in touch with Lee, I can link to his name in the show notes. He's awesome and can help you kind of figure out what equipment you need with your budget. But this podcast equipment is the most expensive thing I've ever bought. How much was it? Um, It was over $2,000. Okay. And when in, I mean, you said the first hundred plus episodes were on Skype. When did you decide to make the investment to do this and what pushed you to that decision? I think it was actually hearing an episode with Rich Roll where him and Julie, his wife, were talking about like a very similar thing to what we're speaking to right now about like starting your own podcast. And that question of a lot of people are like, oh, I want to start my own podcast because it does seem kind of cool. Like, oh, you get to talk with really amazing people and get to sit in a room with them or be on Skype with them. But he was speaking to just the power of in-person interviews and how that's something he's like upheld himself to. And I was thinking about like all some of the podcasts that I like the most, whether those be NPR ones and how high quality they are. And then in order to be you know, a podcast that does really well in the iTunes marketplace, shall we say, it has to be really high quality. And to me, the only way to do that is to do in person. 
And so it was after hearing Rich say that. And then I actually visited NPR, their studios in Boston, and got to one day kind of get like a tour because I met this woman there who has her own radio show and talked to her about it as well. And then I made the plunge and bought the equipment and I'm doing it. And it's it's challenging sometimes with the whole in-person logistics, but it's also such a fun adventure. <laughs> like I love getting to go to random places and meet people in person. And I feel so much more connected to to the interviews that I've done in person versus Skype. And I think we're able yeah. to just go so much deeper, even energetically. Yeah, that's interesting. It's so interesting to hear about your experience. I mean, the other thing too that I want to bring back around that you said before when you were talking about yoga teaching was this idea you were saying of like, just start. Like, even if you have no idea, like it sounds like you didn't know anything about audio editing. You didn't know anything about the technical side of this, you know, just, and you were like, uh, for obviously moved to do this and committed to it. And it sounds like had a strong why behind it. It wasn't just like a flippant decision. But then, I mean, again, the unsexy answer that people don't want is like, will you just start everything that you've learned in the last 200 episodes you've learned through creating 200 episodes, right? That there's no like magic plan that you could give to anyone. Like obviously they can find anything on, you know, if you Google, like you said, like think there's great resources on the internet, but at the end of the day, you've got to just start, right? Totally. Yeah, I love that. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to share specifically about the podcast before we moved on? Feel pretty good. I love it. I'm sure this will um, spark follow up questions from people too, which I don't know if you're open to or oh, not. Yeah, but, bring yeah. it on. I'm so excited to hear people's reactions to this. So we t- we started to talk about goals a little bit, um, you know, running bucket list or you know that type of stuff. So this next one comes from Angie, and Angie wants to know if there was ever a time that you didn't meet a personal goal that you had set, whether it was running, yoga, or anything else that was important to you. If so, regardless of its size or scope, how did you deal with the disappointment that goes along with that experience? It's a good question, right? Angie, so many goals that you don't meet, but I feel like that's just, that's life. Um, I'd say a goal recently that I'm still healing from was I worked in Ethiopia and I was a volunteer there and I was working there with a program called the Yaya Girls and I was teaching English and gender empowerment and coaching a group of young Ethiopian women. I was living with them and I ended up leaving early. So my intention was to be there for six months and I was there for a little over three. And I left um, because I was attacked there and almost raped and had to fight for my life. And it was a very traumatic experience. And I left very quickly and I was so disappointed in myself that I left. And it was, I mean, like the circumstances basically were... I ended up having that experience. The girls I lived with in Ethiopia did not speak any English, so I had no one to tell what had just happened to me. And I ended up getting access to a phone, ended up calling my mother, who's like, as as you guys have heard, and hopefully mama will listen. Um, But she's, you know, she's my everything. And she just, she booked my flight. She didn't even tell me. She booked my flight home for three days later. And I, because she was just not down. Because at that point, as a white woman there, it was a very challenging experience. And I was attacked on numerous occasions, but this one attack wasn't particularly um, intense. So my mom had known about some of the other stuff. And so I, um, yeah, I went home and I felt so disappointed because I'd asked my community to raise money for me to do the work there. I'd raised over $8,000. I'd asked all my family and friends and... 
I felt disappointed to let the girls down who I was living with. I mean, like they didn't understand why I was leaving. And there were so many tears that day. And I felt so embarrassed coming back to the States and not knowing what I was going to do. Um, and I didn't leave my bed for a week. Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like very courageous of you to share, to share this. So thank you for that. And I feel like the end part of, of Angie's question, how did you deal with the disappointment that goes along with, you know, and obviously this is just not only one specific goal that you had yeah. to stay there, but this is a huge thing. And I don't think anyone listening would say, Julia, I think you should have stuck it out, right? Like this is such an intense example, but I'm really curious what the aftermath was like for you. How, how did you deal with feeling disappointed in yourself? Like how did yeah. you kind of heal from that? I think I had to let myself feel it because it's so easy when we're in pain like that to numb it, to pretend like we're okay, to put on face to actually just feel the pain and the disappointment and to let it move through my being, to feel the trauma and to not actually like hide from it. And so staying in my bed for that week and not seeing anyone, not even telling anyone I was back in the States at this point, the only people that knew were my parents. That was just, that was how I like dealt with it was actually like seeing it instead of just continuing on with life or fe- like acting like everything was perfect. Cause that's something I notice a lot with people is like we can be in denial so much or we can act like everything's fine and try to like keep it all together. But inside we're really in a lot of pain. And so actually experiencing that and then being gentle to myself was huge. And I'm still working on that. But like being gentle on that, like it's okay. It's okay to be in pain. It was okay. Like it shook me to my being. And then I'm still dealing with some of the repercussions from that experience today. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, and I, I would, this is obviously just an assumption, but I would assume that what part of what you're still dealing with, it's not even necessarily just related to like having not completed a thing. Like, that's obviously a very traumatic experience, right? That there's other things for play sure there as well. But with yeah. disappointment, I, so I say the two takeaways then are one, like feel the disappointment and then being gentle with yourself in coming out of it. Yeah. I mean, what I hear you speaking to is, allowing all of your feelings to exist, even if they're uncomfortable feelings. Like, I think we have this cultural, like distaste for disappointment, like that being disappointed is the worst thing in the world, right? Or like to do everything you can to avoid being disappointed, which is why a lot of times people don't go for their goals. Right. Yes. And so like, I hear you speaking to like, it's fine if you get disappointed, like actually that's okay. Like you're going to, you can handle being disappointed. I don't know. That's what is coming through for me with what you're saying. Yes, totally. Yeah. And something you've taught me that I love is the statement, you can do hard things. And that, like, it's okay to be disappointed or it's okay to be heartbroken. I mean, the other thing, too, and not to dig too much into just this one experience, but what I also think this illustrates is you had mentioned before, you know, that something that you have gotten from yoga teacher training or just, like, not training, but just, like, being yoga teacher is this idea of kind of setting the intention and then surrendering, you know, however the class is going to unfold. Like, I see a lot of parallels with that, with this as well, that you, you know, went into this experience, you know, that you're going to go to Ethiopia and you're going to do this program and you raise the money and, you know, I I know that you, like me, also have, like, I want to control all the things, right? Like, here's all the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted, this is how much money I need, this is how the experience is going to be, and you can do all of that and you can have the best intentions, you know, to provide this experience for these girls and to be in kind of community with the other people that are there, but you can't, you can't control all the things. Yes. Right. Like 
<laughs> you cannot. Yeah. And even it was last week, I actually had a running on home listener reach out to me via email. He want, want, was going to Ethiopia or he wants to go to Ethiopia to volunteer there and be a coach. And he asked me for some of my advice. And I was like, dude, like, I can't write my advice over email. We're going to have to talk on the phone. <laughs> so we talked to the phone. Hi, Justin. And, and I basically was speaking to a lot of this. What I was saying to him is that like, you could, I can't control it. That whole experience I couldn't control. And it just wasn't easy. Like going to a country and like living in very, very uncomfortable circumstances, no running water, no electricity, no internet, like not being able to speak the same language as people. Like it's not easy. And I think go before I went in thinking like, oh, I'm going to teach so much. I'm going to help out so much. No, I was the one who was served. I was the one who was taught. Like I almost feel selfish in some ways for having gone because I'm like, actually I was the one who learned so much. And also coming home, people then like put you up on a pedestal for having gone to like Africa. And I'm just like, dude, like I don't deserve to be on a pedestal like at all. Like, the people who I witnessed there and, like, the things that they go through every day, the women I worked with, like, they're the ones on the pedestal. How did that experience, like, let's just say kind of the disappointment that you felt about the goal, um, not, how did that, if at all, change future goals or, like, the mindset that you went into kind of subsequent goals after that? Hmm. Yeah, so... I think the the importance in achieving future goals of having more support around you. Like I felt very alone in Ethiopia and not having support and having people who spoke the same language as me. And so even though the podcast for me is, yeah, it's like a solo endeavor. I still have people I collaborate with in it, whether that's you or Lauren or my designer, Ethan. So like not being so alone in the things that I do. And that experience was similar like Hawaii in the sense that like I spent so much time alone when I was in Ethiopia. I spent time with the girls, but if you're spending all day with someone and you're never actually like having a a spoken conversation, it can feel pretty isolating. Mm -hmm. So the importance of community in achieving our goals. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, so the next question that we're moving on to, this is Nick's question. Nick says and asks, been following and listening to the podcasts for a while now. And while I'm an ultra runner and love the incredible guests you get, I genuinely engage with all of your episodes. You're doing such an amazing job. So thank you. Great concept for the 200th. I guess my question is if you can share your top three, five, or even 10 lessons that you've learned, discovered, uncovered, or gained from the 199 episodes that you've done so far. Nick, you're awesome. Thanks so much for asking and supporting. Like, I think with the podcast, um, I've gotten to know or, you know, people who tweet at you or write to you a lot. Like, you guys are real people to me. And I'm so grateful for you. And Nick, thank you for reaching out and just being such a big supporter. It means a lot. And he's, yeah, he's on the other side of the world, which is pretty cool. So first lesson I actually learned in Ethiopia I had the opportunity there to interview a man named Haile Gabriel Selassie, who's the record holder in the marathon, or was the former world record holder in the marathon, which is just like bananas. Um, And the interview with Haile was also just like the whole circumstances around the interview were hilarious because I met his personal assistant and his personal assistant, I was like, oh yeah, I would love to interview Haile. Like just throwing it out there, like a crazy, you know, crazy dream. His personal assistant liked me. And so he was like, yeah, no problem. Just come to the office at Friday, like Friday at this time. So I go to the office. It's not like an office. It's like a whole 
seven-story building that Haile is like empires in because this dude owns Addis Ababa, like the capital of Ethiopia. I mean, he has like a car company and he owns a bajillion hotels and like he's not just a runner. He's become like a politician, a leader in Ethiopian society and culture. So I walk into Haile's office and Haile doesn't have a computer also. Like crazy. This man is administering, leading so many people, no computer. And people are just coming in and out during the entire interview, like asking him to sign official documents, which was also really funny. And he had no clue who I was. Like his his personal assistant had given him no heads up that I was coming to interview him. So he was a little bit taken back. And apparently he doesn't, he doesn't do a ton of interviews. And I mean, this white girl, you know, with blonde hair comes in like, and just sits down and I was like, Hey, <laughs> like I try to explain to him what like my podcast is, you know, he's not like he listens to podcasts. It was just hilarious. It's an incredible story. Yeah. Hilarious. And so we talked and he also like English is not his first language. And so if people listen to that episode, some people have been like, well, I don't really understand it. Just listen to it again. Like it'll take you a couple times, but he says some things in it that like, oh my God, go right to your heart. I'd say a couple of the lessons are from him, but I'm going to say one lesson. And he said this line that I honestly think about every single day. And he said, running is like eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I've thought about that so much of what he meant by that and how I understand that lesson that I learned was that our physical, our emotional, our spiritual practices that we do, they're pretty mundane. Like, it's like you just, you do, you do the practice. It's just like eating. Like, it's not a big deal. It's just like, and then sometimes you get to go out to dinner and it's a delicious meal. But most days it's just pretty simple and most people aren't going to watch you do it and you're just doing it. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that we could dig into around that, right? That like, yet we have the fantasy that it's the opposite, right? That it's this like big glorified, like, you know, someone, I mean, listening that, you know, maybe I'm going to start running and they think of it as this whole, like, but actually like, it's mostly just kind of boring or like not boring, but like mundane, like you said, that it's just, and that there's so much beauty and power in that. Yes. I love that. I love that. Something else that I want to say, which obviously you're talking about sharing like lessons that you've learned. I feel like a takeaway for me just listening to you share that story is you might as well just throw a wide net because like if you would have let the the belief that there's no way I'm going to be able to interview this person holds you back from even throwing it out there. Like you mentioned before that you get tons of people that either don't respond or say no to being on the show. Like, but also sometimes they say yes. And, but they're never going to say yes if you don't ask. Like this he's not going to come down from his seven story building and like find you where you're staying. He'd be like, listen, I want to be on your podcast, right? Like you, you have to ask. Yes. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. Yes. I totally agree with that. You have to ask. And I'd say the person who taught me that was my mother. She, I mean, my mom is, was born and raised in Ecuador. She came to the United States for college. English is her third language. She has overcome so much in her life. And she's someone who just like always is a believer and just asking. That you're never going to know, you know, what's possible if you don't just ask. Also, literally the worst case scenario is that someone either says no or doesn't respond. Totally. Like as soon, And obviously that can be disappointing or it can feel crushing. But like as soon as you can get okay with that the world is yours, right? So like, well, yeah, I love that. So what are some of the other lessons that you wanted to share that you've learned? 
Okay, I'll just give two more. Um, one is from Ambie Burfoot, who I had on the podcast this summer. He's the 1968 Boston Marathon winner, and he was also the former editor of Runners Runners Running Times, I think, or Runners World. I'm Runners sorry, World. Runners yeah. World. Thank you. Amazing man and human being, and he has a saying that again is a running saying, but relates to everything to me, and that's every mile is a gift, and that to me is so powerful because it's like when you're running or when you're doing yoga for me, like those, those practices where, you know, sometimes it's time-based or distance-based, like you can really take for granted the fact that you're doing it and that your body is like capable of doing that. And even sometimes those miles suck if you feel bored or tired or hurt or whatever, but like, it's such a gift. Mm-hmm. Every mile is a gift. Yeah. I mean, because just imagine, and obviously you've had injuries and this kind of stuff too, like how much money you would pay to magically be able to go back to having like that one run that you really didn't want to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then even the runs that like, don't feel that spectacular, like those are gifts too. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, and something that sticks out to me for you from kind of just like your story and the longevity with like running and yoga and stuff is like everything connects and you like, you don't necessarily know where something's going to lead. So it could be this like, eh, you know, like run, or it could be a bad run, it could be whatever, but like, you don't know, like what that, like, maybe you have like 16 of those runs and then there's some kind of breakthrough, right? Or like with the podcast, or you don't know what you're doing until you do know what you're doing, that like somewhere yes. everything connects. And you just keep showing up. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And then I'd say my last lesson comes from my good friend, Greg Faxon, who I've had on the podcast twice as well. I had him once on Skype and then once in person and everyone should just check him out. He's an incredible coach of entrepreneurs and truth teller. But he taught me that it's so important to unlock your core brilliance. And what that means is to really understand like where you feel powerful or what you feel powerful doing and do that. And so him and I, he talked to me. He's like, you know, I think your core brilliance is being a facilitator. And I sat with that statement for a while. Like, what does it mean to be a facilitator? And after a while, I was like, yeah, that's really what I am. I'm a facilitator of conversations. I'm a facilitator of healing. And that, like, in stepping into that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and that there's so much more to be gained from being in, um, you know, I've heard it also called, like, your zone of genius, right? This thing of, like, the more time you can spend in that zone by either just not doing things that are outside of that or delegating them or, you know, anything like that, that you're going to make, have the most kind of joy and fulfillment and also just make the biggest strides. I mean, and that goes back to even Emma's question about the podcast. And obviously we were saying, you know, maybe if someone thinks they want to start a podcast, but it's not for whatever reason in that zone, like they're probably not going to enjoy it or get the traction Yes. from, yes. from doing it. Right. So like for so you, what is your yeah. brilliance? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah. where can you, where, what can you do to highlight that? So this is kind of a, a, a small specific question, but it sounds like you identify with this idea of, you know, part of your core brilliance being, you know, being a facilitator. Like you said, do you feel like that's maybe why it's, or uh, not why, but it's kind of uncomfortable for you to be on the other side of it, like being interviewed, like where, where in being a facilitator are, are you kind of letting yourself have like your stories and your stuff shine through? Like, well, what role in facilitating did like, where does that come out? If that makes sense? 
Yeah, I think I'm still figuring that out. Because with like yoga teaching, for example, and yoga teaching, it's about the poses. It's about the practice. It's not like I'm teaching, like I'm telling about my life story. Or in this podcast, I mean, now it's about my life story. And that's like so scary. But <laughs> it's that's not what it's about necessarily, my own story. And so I think that's right now like where I'm trying to step up into is to start to share more of me. So I don't necessarily know where the path of like being a facilitator and then also being like my own truth teller. But I think through having these conversations, through my style of interviewing, I am here. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think so too. And I, but it's it's really a joy to kind of watch even this evolution for you because I think there's so much kind of power and wisdom and honesty in your own story. Like even conversations that we've had off air, just you know, like friend to friend conversations. That it's so kind of wonderful and encouraging and comforting for me to hear you do that. And I guess what I'm speaking to is I don't feel like that gets in the way of being a good facilitator at all. And I actually, and I'm, I'm curious kind of the feedback that you get on this episode, but I'm sure other people would agree that like you're a powerful, like who you are and your story is a powerful part of even facilitating facilitating that. So I'm thrilled that you're talking more about yourself. Thanks, girl. Thanks for stepping with me. Were there any other lessons that you wanted to share? Or does that kind of cover what you wanted to talk about? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it at that. I mean, I could probably do 199 more lessons, <laughs> right. but I'm going to leave it at those three. I love it. Um, so then the last listener question is from Adam. And Adam writes... This, so this is an, a really interesting question. It's essentially a two-part question. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I, we're going to do one part at a time. So Adam writes, what message would your present self want to share with your 14-year-old self? What might your 14-year-old self think, feel, and say after seeing where your present self is? So diving into the first part of that, what message would your present self want to share with your 14-year-old self? And maybe you can kind of place us in what was going on in your life when you were 14. Yeah, Adam, such a brilliant question. Damn, like you stopped me in my tracks when you sent me that email. Seriously, like stop me in my tracks. I would say that my 14-year-old self, I was in eighth grade, so I was a little bit older. Actually, I feel like most people when they're 14, they're in high school. But I repeated fifth grade because I have a learning disability and I went from a public to a private school. So it was kind of like in the older age of my class. And eighth grade, I was about to head into high school a pretty prestigious, really academically rigorous high school. And I would have, and then in eighth grade, I just took the whole like getting into high school process more seriously than I took the whole getting into college process. Like I didn't actually stress that much about getting into college, whereas I stressed about it in eighth grade, um, getting into high school, which is kind of insane. So I would have said to myself, and what I wish I had known was to just do less homework and have and play more and go hang out with my friends more and be outside. I mean, I wish a part of me wishes I could have said, hey, you should have joined a sports team. But that's just not like where I was at. My evolution was to see myself as an athlete or to tap into that. So I would say do less homework. I like that. Because I just I took like I did so much homework and I was such a little perfectionist and pushed myself so hard. And that is obviously something that like is a gift of mine, but it's also a curse. How... So essentially, obviously, I know you're not doing homework now, but that kind of whatever that's a stand in for, how do you, so this advice that current you would give to former you, how do you follow that advice now? Okay. I still need that advice because <laughs> I could be caught like on a Friday night, just working on like editing at like the restaurant until it closes at like nine o'clock at night by myself. Um, and the people are like, you really need to get out of the restaurant <laughs> that's happened here. Um, so I still think I need to take that advice, but I'm learning more. And I think 
learning more it's oftentimes being able to know that like the times that I am productive and that I'm quote unquote working are going to be even that much more focused and fruitful if I allow myself more time to actually unplug from that work mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's it's hard for me though because I feel so called to do what I do and so it's like I do really enjoy it and I can push myself really hard at it but it's a really fine balance so knowing to just be more intentional about the times that I create when I'm actually working versus times that I'm spending with people or just doing my own thing. Yeah. I mean, and even in addition to, you know, like you said, the having the fire and being super passionate about what you're doing, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation that like, there's a lot of hustle here. Like this isn't like a, you know, you got hired to create a podcast from someone that's giving you like a full-time salary and you go in and those are your work hours. Like this is something that you're building like completely on your own for, and like trying to make this a financially viable you know, thing that you can do this work. And I think that that adds even another element of, well, if I work on this all the time, right? Like that it it makes sense to me that that's where that would come from. Totally, totally. But I think it's so, at the same time, it's so important to have like, in yoga, we talk about this philosophy, stira sukha asana, strength and surrender. Like you need to have the yin and the yang, like those balances of energy in your life, that masculine and feminine, which we've spoke to, um, to have both of those energies in your life, I think to be an integrated person and for you to be sustainable in whatever you do. And so just the way in which I lived my life in eighth grade and I'm still struggling with now, it's not always very sustainable. So it's like, it's constantly a process of me being in conversation with myself of, okay, am I, am I actually like taking a break? Well, and I'd say, especially because you're so passionate about it, like because you have the fire, it seems like this is something that you want to have longevity and that you want to continue to build. And if you, you know, burn yourself out in the next like two months, then that's not possible. So it's almost like holding that vision that I know that you have, you know, for like we're obviously just using the podcast specifically to be like, okay, in service of that vision, I I need to close my computer and go play and do less homework. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. So the second part of the question, what might your 14 year old self think, feel, or say after seeing where your present self is? And this could be in any, like, it doesn't just have to be work-related, like anything. I think I'd be really surprised that music is not a bigger part of my life. Because for me, like my whole childhood, what I devoted myself was to singing and music and in college, I was a double major in ethnomusicology and religion, and I studied music in college, and I've, I mean, I was singing upwards of five hours a day in high school, whether it was voice lessons, choir, acapella groups, college was similar, and so I'd be really surprised that I'm not singing, but I also think for me, singing, I mean, I love singing now still. I love singing in the shower. I love singing in my room. I love singing with people, like a friend of mine, he was playing guitar a couple weeks ago, just jamming out with him, like I'm so down to sing anytime. But I also think it's like there's only so many hours in a day you can put towards that creative spiritual work. And so it's transformed right now for me into other things. But I know it's going to come back around. So I'd be surprised by not singing as much. I think I'd also, I would just be like, yeah, it makes sense that you're doing a podcast. As a young kid, I always thought I was going to be a therapist. That's like what the joke was in my family. Like, oh, Julia, you always love talking to strangers and and getting their stories. You know, if I'm sitting next to someone on an airplane, like, I just want to know everything about you. That's just how I am. Like, I love learning about people. That's what lights me up. So I wouldn't be surprised that I'd be doing something in this way. I think I would be surprised that I didn't go to grad school or I'm like in a partnership. You know, I thought my life was going to definitely be a little bit more secure than it is. Yeah. What do you mean when you say not in a partnership? Do you mean in a relationship? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not have a boyfriend and not in a relationship or kind of like building something. Cause I would love to, I'd love to have a family someday. And I feel like there's certain things in my life I feel called to do. And one of them is to definitely be a mother. 
did you have a, I'm going to be married at this time. I'm going to have this many, the 2.5 kit by that. Like, did you have essentially like a, a plan or a vision of that? I didn't have, no, I didn't have, and I don't have like exact times. And the more I learn from people, the more it's like everyone has kids and gets married, you know, in their own paces and in their own ways and in their own timelines. But I definitely thought I would have like been on the road there at this point and I'm the road is the road has not been paved yet <laughs> that you know of you have no idea what is being paved or not right yeah you don't. might right you might be like one freeway exit away you never know who knows yeah I don't <laughs> but it's just yeah it's I I think I I just feel so grateful to be where I am today and I think my 14 year old self that was a similar part of my spirit was just always like I feel very alive and yeah. I still feel very alive. And I always want to be that way. I love that. That was a great question of Adam's. Adam, you're the bomb. I've thought about this question too ever since you first shared it with me. So it's yeah, yeah. one of those that like it seems like a simple question, but kind of gets under your skin, especially because I feel like 14 is such like a formative age. Yeah. Oh right? my gosh. Like anytime on podcasts or whatever, when I hear people asking this, it's, you know, what advice would you give your 30 year old self or your, you know, if they're talking to someone who's older than that, obviously or farther along in their career, but like 14, I don't know. That's, I, I love it. I think that's a great question. Um, so I'd love to wrap by asking you a couple more of my own random questions. Oh, bring not, it. Not as bizarre as the baby English muffin. That was just for fun. <laughs> the baby English muffin was kind of intense. Right. <laughs> I'm not wanting to cut off my pinky tonight. Um, yeah, I'll tell you, I actually didn't make up that question. I They had the would you rather, they have like a a board game or like, it, you know, they have like a series of games and that was like, I've played it in many different situations formerly as a drinking game. And that was the one that always stuck with me as like the most bizarre question of pretty much any would you rather question. So I'm glad that finally somewhere in my life, I've gotten the chance to use that question on somewhere else. So thanks. Um, so, okay. So some closing questions, what's your guilty pleasure? Kombucha. I spend so much money on kombucha. I, <laughs> I need to like start brewing it on my own. I don't drink alcohol. Um, and I don't really drink like a lot of, yeah, I don't really drink a lot of things other than water and kombucha. And so I definitely say ginger, kombucha, synergy, total guilty pleasure, but it's all good. It's, it gives me probiotics. I also am like, you know, if I'm not spending money on alcohol, then it's my like $3 a day that some people would spend on a beer or wine. Yeah. And now, I mean, being in Bend, right, that this is kind of like a kombucha central situation. Totally. Totally. But I'm still a synergy girl. I mean, the local kombuchas are good here, but I think when you're so accustomed maybe to a certain taste that like it's, yeah, it is an addiction. I'm I love it. To, I'm a I kombucha love it. addict. I, I've asked that guilty pleasure question to a lot of people and no one has ever said kombucha. So I love that that's your answer. Um, so you spoke about your mom kind of a, a bunch through this interview, which was lovely. And I'm curious what you'd say the most helpful lesson is that you learned from your parents, either directly from them teaching you or indirectly through observing them. I would say that you have to work really hard in order to do the things you love and and to be good at them like my dad is a landscape architect and he has a business in Cambridge that he's been doing now for over 20 years and he works seven days a week and he works most seasons and he has just worked so so hard like every day at it and 
But the cool thing is that he loves it. Like my dad loves plants. He loves geeking out about the Latin names of plants. Like if we're ever on a road trip, we have to stop and visit nurseries. <laughs> we like, he'll have to stop and see trees. He's always asking me to send me pictures from Bend of like the flowers and like bushes near my house. <laughs> he doesn't want to see the mountains or like the Deschutes River. He wants to see like the type of bush um, that's outside my doorstep. So just to really love what you do and work hard at it. And both my parents come from families where their parents are not from the U.S. and grew up on farms and extremely poor. And so I think both my parents really have that immigrant, like, do hard work in order to do what you love. You have to work really hard. Yeah. I mean, and I definitely see that coming out in, in you too. Like you, of, of everyone that I know, I feel like you're like one of the hardest workers. So I think that you definitely embody that for sure. Wow. Thank you. So the next question, it's not really a question. It's more of kind of like a fill in the blank situation that was first posed to be first posed to me by my good friend, Alex, and it's kind of her favorite icebreaker type situation. And the question it's, if I really knew you, I'd know. And then what's the, like, if someone really knew you, what's something that they would know? Oh, okay, cool. Um, I like that. If you really knew me, you would know that I have a hard time laughing. Say more about that. What do you mean? Like, I don't laugh that often. Like, sometimes I'll giggle, and I'm sure I giggled because I was kind of uncomfortable during this interview at certain points. But... I don't belly laugh. Like, I don't laugh hysterically. And I wish I did. I really wish I could. And there's a few people. My father, he's one of them. I have a friend at camp who can make me laugh, like tears of laughter. But if you really knew me, you would know, you would know that I don't laugh that much. That's so funny because that's not, I mean, obviously you and I have known each other for that long. Like, I feel like I've definitely heard you laugh a lot, but maybe it's like the distinction between like that type of like deep connected laughter. Yeah. That's so interesting. Oh, I love that. See, this is a good question. I can take no credit. This is all, Alex, but uh, it's a great question. Um, what's one event that occurred in your life that at the time maybe felt like the worst thing or the end of the world or something really dramatic, but in hindsight was a positive turning point for you? Yeah. Um, oh, this is like so silly, but um, in fifth grade, so when I ended up going from a public to a private school, I applied to this private school that my best friend Lily goes to and I didn't get into it because I, yeah, for a lot of reasons I didn't get into it. And I was devastated because like my best friend Lily is like still my soul sister now. I wanted to go to school with her, have that experience together. Her school was like the cool school to go to in Cambridge where I'm from. And so I ended up getting into another private school that I went to, but that private school that I went to, there was only 29 kids in my grade, which is really small. And I went there from fifth through eighth and I got so much special attention academically. And I really believe that un- if I hadn't gone to that school, I would have not been able to have had the success academically I had in high school and then in college mm-hmm. because of those four years and all the support that I had in that community. So I was totally devastated in fifth grade. And you're like a fifth grader and getting a rejection from a school is just kind of intense. Right. Right. Especially when like all you want to do is like be with your friends. Yeah. yeah. No, that's a great example. So then the last question that I want to ask, when you look ahead at the next few months, what's one thing that you feel super excited about? Ooh. I am so excited to see Bend in summer. Oh my God. As you should be. (laughs) Like I just moved to Bend in November and this place is so beautiful. Like every day, mother nature takes my breath away. Every day, every day here, straight up every day. 
Like today I was biking, riding to teaching yoga, saw the sisters, saw the mountain, was just like blessed. Like, oh my God. And I could not wait to get to experience so much more of Oregon and Bend this summer. And get to go like up into the mountains and stuff in when they're not covered in snow yes, and, and all get the to wild see the mountains flowers. that like I've been skiing in or like in the, like from a distance and actually get to hike them and yeah I love it that's awesome um, this was so wonderful I know that this was something that you were nervous about doing and I just want to say basically since I am also one of your listeners <laughs> also your friend but one of your listeners that thanks I think this is like such a gift that you have given to the people that listened that really are even if you don't think so so curious about you and want to hear more of your own story and I know that obviously we can only cover so much in two hours but I hope that this is something that you choose to do again because I think it was just lovely and I'm glad that I got to be a part of it well, Nicole, thank you so much for holding the space for me and asking me and pushing me and asking me some really weird questions. I'm never going to forget the English muffin. And I just want to also acknowledge everyone who's listening and thank them for their support. That's what a crazy thing to me about podcasting is that there like will be thousands of people who will listen. And I don't know you. I don't know maybe where you're listening to this too. Maybe you're on the trainer. Maybe you're riding your bike. Maybe you're running. You're with your kids in your car. Like, I don't know, but I'm just so honored that you've taken the time to listen to my story. So thank you. Thank you so much for submitting your questions for this special 200th through episode. I'm bummed that I couldn't have gotten to all of them, but I'm going to definitely consider doing more Q&A type format podcasts if you dig it. So let me know what you thought about it. And my question for you is what have you done 200 times that's changed your life? Tweet or write to me on Instagram. I want to know your answer, and I always love to hear from you. If you want to help me still be at this 200 episodes from now, two ways you can do this are, one, to leave an iTunes review. I read every single one of them, and you can actually do that right now from the podcast application on your phone. If you have an iPhone, just click on the Reviews tab, let me know what you think about Rue, and know that your review helps me improve Rue's visibility on the iTunes interface so that more like-minded people can find this podcast and I can continue to bring on the most amazing guests for all of you. And my second ask is that if you listen to Rue regularly and you want to help me provide you the highest quality podcast episodes every week, to donate to Rue's Patreon page, where for as little as $2 a month, you can support Rue and get insider access into the podcast, behind-the-scenes clips from recording sessions, opportunities to be coached by me, and get a personal shout-out on the podcast. So visit patreon.com slash runningonohm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash runningonohm, and know that any amount of support helps. I'm still kind of in shock that I'm releasing this 200th episode, telling you all my secrets, surprises, and lessons learned from the past 200 podcasts. So thank you for tuning in today. Thank you for supporting Running on Ohm, and deep gratitude to each and every one of you. Yes, you. I'm your host, Julia Hanlon, and I hope you have a roof-filled day.